Man, it is good to be coming to you from our worship center again. And so as we're back in here, it seems to me the only thing missing is you sitting here with us, worshiping the Lord together. But as we have opportunity to kind of gather back in this space, it's been just a kind of a wild ride. It's been this unpredictable at times, and, and it felt like we were struggling to keep up and to catch up with all the innovation that was required of us and required of, of churches all across the U.S., all across our city, and, and in fact, all across the world. And in these times of innovation, I think one of the things that, that our mind goes to, or certainly my mind, perhaps, perhaps yours isn't there, it's just this idea of, is, is there some other area of my life that, that I need to apply the same dedication of innovation? And occasionally, over the course of our Christian lives, we find that uh, we're introduced to some new teaching, we're introduced to some new principle, we're introduced to some new author who, who brings us this decidedly innovative approach to our understanding and application of faith. And so when we begin to view our own faith, our own faith journey, our own uh, kind of trip through life following Jesus, through the lens of this innovation, through the lens of this new teaching, through the lens of this new application and discussion on Christianity, we are tempted sometimes to view our own faith as anemic, as weak, as impoverished. So it's really interesting that in this passage where Paul opens up and he calls on this group of Colossian believers to stand against heresy, to stand for the gospel, that he doesn't call them to a new and innovative application of faith. But in a very real sense, he calls them back to the steady moorings of their faith. He calls them back to the basics of the gospel. He calls them back to the true and to the simple, in some sense, application, the gospel that they have received. Let's look here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 in this short passage today. Paul writes and says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So you'll remember when chapter 2 opens up, Paul goes through and he has this discussion where he's talking about the word that he sent to him, and he wants to encourage them, and he wants to see them encourage one another. But then he says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We recognize that there are those who are seeking to lead the Colossians astray. There are those who are seeking to say, listen, uh, your, your faith's okay. It's doing just a, you know, a pretty decent job. But if you would add this to your faith, if you would add this various aspect of your faith, if you would add this nuance to your understanding, oh, the limits you could go, oh, the distances you could reach, oh, the glories you could behold. But then he ends in verse 5, and he says, But when I look at you and I see you, I see that you're standing firm, and I see the good order of what? Of your faith in Christ. He says, Though you face oppression, though you face deceit, though you face the onslaught of heresy, still your faith stands because of where it is established, namely in Christ. Let's see what he has to say about us and for us and our faith today. Paul writes and says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, Paul uses this, this, this phrase, this, this word here of 
received in, in, in a really precise way over the course of his various letters. And I think one of my favorite places that he uses it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Read with me. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also what received, namely that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul talks about the thing that he's received. He said, listen, it's not some high and mighty philosophy. It's not something beyond uh, your reach. It is this simple understanding that that which he has received is that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. That he, was died, that he died and that he was raised again. Now, though oftentimes when we think about the idea that what it looks like that, that I have received Christ is the idea of, of kind of my own personal experience of this. The fact that I've had my own faith journey, that I've gone through this, and that at some point in the midst of my life, whether I'm a child, a preteen, uh, an adult, or a senior adult, that at some point in my life there's this intersection whereby I receive Christ. And so it's primarily this understanding of this, this isolated, individualized journey that we've been on. But when Paul uses this word received here, he's not talking about primarily our experiences, but he's talking about that thing which we have believed. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he, he informed them of this. He said, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before. Listen, they heard in the word of truth the gospel. So there's something that they have heard. There's something that has been presented to them. He says, verse 6, It has come to you, and indeed into the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day that you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. And so we see Paul's not primarily saying, listen, because you have all these people who are approaching you with heresy, because you have this difficulty that's come in, because you're facing persecution, you need to reflect back upon your own faith journey. You need to reflect back on the uniqueness of your experience. You need to reflect back on the specific things that you are doing, which would be difficult for some of us. Some of us, we cannot remember a time when we weren't Christians, Right? And so you begin to say, what was it like for you to come to faith? You say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. Well, this is what this looks like. And so we begin to think that our experience isn't decidedly exciting. It's not decidedly unique. And we begin to wonder, were we genuine on the basis of our common experience with so many in our peer group? But look what he says here. He says, it is Christ you have received. You have received, you have heard, you have understand, and it is unchangeable. It is unmovable. This message given to us about Jesus. And so Paul's not calling upon them to reflect upon the strength of their experience. He's calling upon them to rest on the sure word of Jesus and that which he has accomplished. And what a relief for us, amen? What a relief for us that he's not calling back and saying, did you really believe what you said you did? But he's calling and saying, do you believe what he has done for you? Jesus submitted himself to death on behalf of sinners, so that we might be reconciled to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And it is this Jesus whom we have received. But we receive him in a really particular way. Look at how he describes him. He says he is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now Joel offered the comment a couple of weeks ago that this gives us the understanding that the Jewish Messiah has come to save the lost. And so we see this understanding in here that the anointed one, that the Messiah for, of all creation, 
that the redeemed one of God, that Christ has, the Christ has come, that God has sent his son so that you and I might be redeemed, so that you and I might come to know him and, being, and knowing him and being known by him might be saved. But he also says he's the Lord. What does he mean there when he writes that he's the Lord? Now, certainly we have this understanding that you have servants and you have lords, right? And so you have kind of us just kind of here on this plane, and then you have uh, someone above us, and that's Christ, and he gets to be in charge. So what he says goes. So the dictates and the leanings of my hearts and my opinions and my preferences, when those seek to leave me uh, in opposition to the dictates and the mandates of the Lord, then I find myself having to say no to self and yes to him. But we also see that what he is writing in here, what he's describing in here, is a shorthand from what he he previously said in 15 through 20. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, let's, let's read this again. He says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God plain. He makes God visible. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Nothing exists that should not rightly give worship to Jesus. He is the creator of it, and all these things owe him allegiance. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is indeed Lord of all. And he calls us on the basis of having received him to live a life with a recognition of his lordship. Not, not, not his buddyship, not the idea that he's going to come alongside us, that he's our, our buddy, our pal, he's going to carry and walk with us no matter where we go through in life. But we live in understanding, and, and what Paul's getting ready to say is that our walk is articulated, it is lived out with a ready recognition and daily application that Christ and Christ alone is Lord. And this begins to transform how we see reality. And this begins to transform how we go about this life in our realized application of living a life where Christ gets to be Lord. So Paul says, Therefore, because you live a life as Christ is Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in Him. Now this is the really fascinating thing about this. Paul's not looking at the church in Colossae and saying to a bunch of individual people, uh, you walk, and you walk, and you walk, and you walk, and you walk. And so he's not looking at them as this disparate group of unconnected people, but he's looking at them as this, this decided unit, this group that has Christ as the head. They are the body. And to this body, to this group of people that he himself is holding together, he says, y'all walk. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? It's so incredibly important because what we find in the midst of all of us living out this life together as a cohesive group, we find that when one of us falls to the side, the rest of us are there to pull him along. That when one of us grows weak and falls to the side, the rest of us are there to turn to her and say, you come along with us. When some of us, as misfortune would have it, as life would have it, we fall prey to the enemy and sin decimates our lives. We have those around us who would be gracious. 
who would come to those and we would say, this sin does not define you, but the redemption offered you and Jesus Christ defines you. And we bring them back along. We help them to walk in that experience of forgiveness. To walk in having received the lavish nature of God's grace poured out upon them for their sin. This is why it's so incredibly important for a church to have unity. For a group of people to walk together not as marked out individuals asserting their autonomy, but as a group of people together, cohesively held together with Christ as the head, heading about this life. And there is no area and no aspect of our lives wherein we are walking where we are without Jesus as our Lord. So we recognize when we go to work, when we go to the hospital, and all the various difficulties of life, he is with us, and we are walking in Him. So Paul gives us this group of words to define exactly what this walking needs to look like, what this life needs to look like. He describes them, and he says they are uh, rooted, built up, and established. Now as we consider our lives, and we consider kind of what we do, if we were going to just apply these words to our lives, we might say that we are rooted in our own lives, we are building upon our skills, and we are established in our routines, right? And so if you're just going to kind of look at your life and someone say, what are you rooted in? We would find that many of us are incredibly enmeshed and rooted in our lives. And those things which happen outside of our lives, we really don't give a great deal of interest to, we really don't give a great deal of importance to, because they are not primarily affecting us. We have this individualized perspective or a or moderately increased perspective that only carries those people that are important to us, have impact upon us. We build upon our skills, we rest upon our own ability. And then we are established in our routines. We are hesitant to break from any routine that we've established and created. We're hesitant to deviate from anything that would be a radical inconvenience to us. And I will tell you that if you go on a walk with a large group of people, that everybody begins to express their various ideas. I want to go here, I want to go there, I want to do this, I want to do that. And so traveling through life with a large group of people is a radical inconvenience. It is. Because everybody's not going to have the same ideas that you do. Everybody's not going to have the same mindset that you do. But what we see in this is that all of our walking gets to be in him, not in any of us. And so he realigns our hearts, he realigns our minds, and he fixes our eyesight on him. Now let's think about the idea of, of rooted. Now the really cool thing is you look at these, they, they fall in order of kind of chronological occurrence. And so we are rooted. He roots us and then he builds us in him and then he establishes us in the faith. Right? So we are rooted and then he's building and establishing us over the course of our lives. So think about this idea of what it looks like to be rooted. When you, when you go and you, and you plant tomato plants and you put jalapeno plants and, and everybody lately is a hobbyist farmer because we all expect the grocery stores to be incredibly empty, right? Or you live in Michigan, you can't get seeds. And so what we find in the midst of these things is that you're, you're trying to grow these things. Now, a lot of what this is going to hinge on, right, is that you treat these plants well. Reading that, you don't ask me for help. But if, if you were to ask me from help, for help, then what I could give you in some sense is some of my past experience failing at growing things. 
Now, when Valerie and I lived in Fort Worth, we got this dirt that we're just going to refer to as miracle dirt, okay? Anything in it, you just put anything in it. You walk by it chewing an apple, the next day you walk out, there's an apple tree. You walk by it eating, uh, you know, a bacon sandwich, you walk out the next day, there's just a herd of pigs. I mean, it was, it was miracle dirt. Anything we put in this dirt, it just popped up. And when we had massive zucchini, I mean, just this big, you couldn't carry them. You had to get a truck and just kind of pull them out. It was amazing. And so it led us to believe that we were pretty gifted at this. We were fairly exceptional at this. So when we moved to Greenville, we decided that we would do a couple raised beds back in the back. And so we went to this uh, soil place and we said, what do you have that's just amazing? Uh, Just so you know, we had miracle dirt before. It was amazing. What do you have that's a close cousin to miracle dirt, perhaps? This is life in the country. Yours should be far superior. And so he gives us this stuff that you should probably know is devil's dirt. And so it wasn't miracle dirt. It was awful. It's the opposite of whatever miracle dirt is. And so we would take our tomato plants. We'd take off the little deal. We'd put it in the ground. We'd make sure it had plenty of water. It was lots of drainage. It was just amazing. And, and, and what do we know? What, do, what happens? Well, at the end of the season, we had a, to, we had a tomato plant. But, 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 but not really any tomatoes. And, and, and what happened with the jalapenos? We had a wonderful jalapeno plant, not really any jalapenos. And what happened with the zucchini and the squash? That plant went everywhere, but we didn't have any output of the fruit that comes off the bases of these things. It all hinged on the soil. And so this year, we've, we've doctored. We, over the last couple of years, we've added things into our soil, and this soil has been corrected where now it is producing good fruit. If you root your life in something other than him, you're going to produce fruit in kind. Now, the fantastic thing here is that God takes us and he roots you in Jesus. God has rooted you in Jesus. So God doesn't put it on yourself and say, this is what you do. The rooting is on you. All these things are on you. But what he does is he takes us in Christian when you have received Jesus, when you have received and believed in him, you are rooted in Jesus. And so all the nutrients from from Jesus flow into your life, and all the life and vibrancy from Jesus flow into your life. And so what we have to do is live our lives in a steady recognition, living in the belief and understanding that he is the soil whereby our lives draw their vibrancy. Now, Jeremiah 2 paints, Jeremiah 12 and verse 2 paints this really bleak picture of what it is like when we seek to just display these things, but we don't actually have them internally. Speaking of the wicked, Jeremiah writes, or rather laments, he says, you plant them and they take root. You grow and they produce, they grow and produce fruit. You are, listen to what he says, near in their mouth and far from their hearts. You're near in their mouths but far from their hearts. How many of us want to give a a running testimony to the fact that God is near to us, that, that in fact Christ resides in us, that we live a life under the submission and direction of the Holy Spirit, but the primary way we seek to do that is by offering verbal testimony, but giving no real display of any change of the way that we live our lives. I would say that these things are impossible. These things are are in direct opposition to the revealed will of God, these things are in direct opposition to what God would have us do and how he would have us to be. If you are a Christian, if you're a person who has submitted yourself to him, you have believed on him, and you have allowed him to reign as Lord and ruler of your life, then you're a person who is is dead set in him. 
you are rooted. God has rooted you in Christ. And so Christ isn't merely this verbal articulation, but he's the very essence of who you are and the way that you live your life because you are rooted in Jesus and none other. Look what he goes on to say. God has rooted you. And I think a better rendering of this would be that he is building you up in him. Christ is, is moving through your life and he is building you up in him. He's working over the process of your life and, and what's referred to as, as edification. Now, he describes it elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, and to know the love of Christ, uh, 2, 19 through 22, that would be chapter 3 and that would be awkward. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's still this idea of being built in him. Christ the cornerstone is established, and then we see this series in the succession of faith. We have the, we have the prophets, we have the apostles, Christ himself the cornerstone. And look what he says. In whom, so in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is systematically moving through your life and building you upon him. And what we find in the midst of this is that there's this, this opposition we create because you know, we have hopes for our futures. We want to build upon our skills. We want to build upon our dreams. We want to build upon our hopes. And what happens is after, he have, after God has established us in Christ by rooting us in him, then he comes along and he begins to build our lives on Jesus. Jesus is the only foundation whereby we can legitimately build our lives. And many of us over the last few weeks have seen wealth disappear. Many of us over the last few weeks have seen health uh, be attacked. We've set our hopes and dreams on a form of government. We've seen our, uh, set our hopes and dreams on a vision of the future. And we've seen all of these things waste away. We fought hard to reestablish them. We fought hard to win them back. We fought hard to reassert them. We fought hard to do these things because what we found in the midst of these things when everything else fell away is that we've not sought to build our lives on Christ. And so our hope has been decimated. Our joy has been robbed. What God is doing in the midst of this what God is, is, is accomplishing in the midst of this is nothing less than re-centering your heart on him. And you ask, is that important? Friend, it's, 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 it's essential. It's vital. And there's no other way whereby you might be in him other than to him to come in and destroy all these things that were a distraction to you and to reestablish your heart and your life on him. Jesus is the one upon whom your life is built. God is putting these things together and he is building your life in Christ, upon Christ. And then he says, lastly, he says, our walk in him needs to be rooted in Jesus. It needs to be being built upon Jesus. And lastly, it is established in the faith. Hebrews 6 and verse 19, speaking of this faith, says it is a sure and steady anchor for our lives. 
some of us in the midst of this, we thought we were established. We thought we were steadfast. We thought there was no moving us. But in the midst of this difficulty, maybe not even for you, maybe it's just in the midst of being empathetic or hearing about bad things that have happened to other people, or hearing about other uh, families whose financial situation wasn't as, as, as steadfast as yours. It was decidedly more precarious. And so when their job went away, their bills, their credit card bills, their mortgage, their rent, their car payment, their ability to buy groceries, all these things went away in an instant. And so while these haven't been things that that you've encountered, your empathy has called upon you to be impacted, to be broken for these people. But what we see in the midst of this is that neither storm nor pestilence, nor personal sickness, nor the disappearing of our global economy or our personal finances can pull us away, take us away from focusing our love, attention, and affection on Jesus. God is establishing you in the faith. And what great news is this? That the same God who, who caused you to take root in Jesus is going about and establishing you in the faith. And so we recognize that in those moments where our heart wavers, in those moments where we are prone to despair, he comes in and he graciously pulls us back to him and he reestablishes us in him. This is a process that goes over the course of our lives. And Christian, the reason why it was, again, so important that we were walking together, walking in him, is because when we see our brothers and sisters seeking to be established in asserting a correct narrative and seeking to be established by debunking something else, we call them back and say, don't seek to be established in those things. Seek to be established in the faith. The faith that doesn't disappoint when all these theories disappear. The faith that doesn't disappoint when all of these things go away. Seek to be established in the faith. Now look at this. He's gone on and he gave them this word, calling them back to the beginning as you have received. So walk, rooted, built up, and established. And then he comes back to the very beginning. He says, just as you were taught. He wants them to understand that there was nothing wayward, there was nothing deficient, there was nothing errant in what they were previously taught. What they needed to do instead was to say that all these fancy new waves of innovation, listen, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to allow my heart to be established in him. I'm going to rest and trust in him just as you were taught. What a sweet relief for this church in Colossae that Paul calls them back to rest and trust in the earlier gospel they had received and not this new wave of innovation that they were seeking to be led astray by just as you were taught. And then he characterizes. Paul characterizes the Christian faith here in the end. There's so much of our Christian faith that is internal. And so we think about faith and just that it's, that it's internal. And certainly it has some external implications, but largely it's internal. Hope is internal. But what he describes in here is this decided characteristic of external display. He says, just as you were taught. This is what it looks like, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. We can read in James and elsewhere 
of what it looks like when sorrow, when difficulty, when suffering comes our way and having even in the midst of those things established our hearts in him. The Apostle Paul gives us a strong word of encouragement in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verses 16 and 17. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, some of us are facing incredible difficulties right now. Some of us, as you hear this word, and hopefully this is a word of encouragement to you, you're just broken. You wonder if there'll ever be joy again. You wonder if all these difficulties will ever go away again. And you wonder, is it even really possible to rejoice and have thanksgiving? A heart set on the Savior and not on the circumstances is able to rejoice in thanksgiving. And occasionally, what the difficulties God superintends to bring across our paths, what they're doing is exposing times where we've set our joy and our displays of thanksgiving on our circumstances. On those things that we would refer to as blessings. On those things that you might just say, this is good fortune. My 401k is growing. I've got this amazing job. I've got this beautiful family. I've got this stunning home. I've got all these people in my life that love me. I've got everything going my way. So in the midst of those things, man, Being thankful, engaging in thanksgiving is not difficult. It would be difficult not to be thankful. But the measure of Christian thankfulness is not in the midst of everything going well. But it's in the midst of these things when we have to set our hope and our purpose on Jesus and Jesus alone. Because Christian, that's where our thanksgiving comes from. That's where our thanksgiving comes from. Christ who overcame sin and death and invited us to know him, to be saved from the penalty and the punishment of our sin, that we might know God and experience redemption in Christ. He's the eternal blessing that never goes away. He's the eternal gift that never disappoints. And so in our focus collectively, walking in Jesus, even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of despondency, we can rejoice. And when the watching world sees that, it makes no sense. They come and they say, how in the world are you able to have thanksgiving in this? See, because my life is set upon Jesus. And my hope rests in Him. And He has not, will not, ever disappoint. Jesus is worth it. He is worthy for us to walk in him. Let us be an encouragement to those around us. Let us set our hope and trust in Jesus. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, we thank you that you give us opportunity to do the impossible abounding in thanksgiving 
not just being thankful, but God, abounding in thanksgiving. You accomplish that. And you let us experience that. So God, I pray for any who have not entrusted themselves to your son Jesus, that in these moments that they would reach out and send us a message via Facebook, send us an email to elders at ridgecrest.com. They would reach out and visit with someone who can share with them how that they can come to have forgiveness of their sins, life eternal, and thanksgiving even here and now. Father, you are good and worthy of all worship. We submit all these things to you. In your son's name, amen.